10. But why nine, some say the moon? Ignition sequence. Why five, choose this as our six, goal? Five, we choose four, to go to the three, moon in this decade two, and do the other one, thing. Not zero, because they are easy, running. but because they are hard. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Everything Astronomy. I'm Joe, and today I'm joined by Michael and Tommy. Unfortunately, Sam couldn't be with us, but rest assured, he will be next week. Today, we're, we were planning on talking about dark matter, and uh, dark matter is obviously a fairly mysterious subject matter. Subject matter. And so to talk about dark matter, we're going to cover three big areas. First of all, the, the history of the science of dark matter. So who first thought of it, how it was conceptualized, the different theories that used to exist about what this dark matter could be. Then we're going to talk about the, the different methods of actually observing dark matter and the evidence that we have for dark matter's existence. Um, and, then, and then lastly, we're going to talk about what dark matter could actually be, so if it's a particle or not. Or, or, and then lastly, we're going to talk about alternatives to dark matter. If dark, dark matter doesn't exist, then what exactly would that look like? Before we get into it, we also wanted to add a new segment to Not So Serious, uh, where we cover some very recent scientific news that we find um, that we think might be interesting to our audience. And so um, at the beginning of every Not So Serious episode from here on out, we want to um, just briefly cover some scientific news, um, explaining what these articles mean, um, just, to, just to pique some interest in different topics that are happening that don't necessarily have to do with astronomy. And if you'd like to read the articles we are referencing in a new segment, uh, there are links below in the description, or you can find them on our website. Uh, welcome to our first new segment. Uh, the first article that I want to cover is physicists have been able to braid um, a two-dimensional particle called an anion. Um, essentially, an anion is a class of um, particles. There's three classes of particles, a fermion and a boson, um, as well as an anion. Electrons, for example, are fermions, whereas photons or particles of lights are bosons. Um, anions are a third class of particle, um, but they're strictly two-dimensional. Um, and so we won't be able to detect them very well in the 3D um, universe that we live in. But physicists have just recently been able to um, braid together anions, essentially um, like a rope um, in the two-dimensional plane that they live in, um, altering their quantum states and leading to um, very interesting effects that they are continuing to pursue. Another news story this past week related to the topic, dark matter, is the search for a particle known as an axion. And so particle physicists uh, recently have been using mines underground, whether that be in the US or in other countries around the world. And so this experiment is based a few thousand feet underneath a mountain in Italy known as Gran Sasso. And they found an abnormal background noise that's unexplained. They could be due, they think possibly, to um, uh, trace amounts of a radioactive material. 
um, but they're not sure. And so they have an experiment that's coming up later this year to hopefully confirm that it's either a what's known as a solar axion um, or just the background noise from that known uh, radioactive isotope. And so this experiment uses something known as xenon. It's a noble element, so it's, um, it's in, inert. Um, and so it's very useful in these experiments. And the one thing that's different for an axion is that when they look for these signals of these particles passing through this, these giant, I think it's 3.2 tons of liquid xenon, when they look for these particles passing through these vats, uh, usually they look for a signal uh, coming from when it strikes the nucleus of the xenon atom. But in this example, uh, the axion wouldn't hit the nucleus, instead it would hit the electron. Um, and so they look for an electric uh, kind of signal to uh, kind of measure how many axions are passing through. But as I mentioned, they're not too sure and they're going to have follow-up experiments later this year. We know that there is something out there that our current physics and, and understanding of the world cannot explain. And that something is that when we look at how galaxies behave and how the universe behaves on the large scale, there appears to be a lot more mass than we can account for through stars and dust and regular matter. And so since the 1930s, this has led scientists to call, to coin this quote unquote missing mass, dark matter. And it seems that dark matter there, it seems that dark matter weighs five, or that there is five times more dark matter than there is regular matter in the universe. And one of the big uncertainties and something that scientists have been trying to solve for the last uh, 90 years now is, is determining what this dark or missing matter is. Because even though we know that there is something out there, we don't know what that something is. And so this has been kind of blowing scientists' minds since the 1930s when it was, uh, when it was, when the idea was first introduced by a man called uh, Fritz Zwicky. Yep, and so Fritz Zwicky in the 1930s, 1933, I believe it was, he's a yep. Swedish astronomer working in America and he observed, or he studied galaxies and galaxy evolution. So basically how galaxies change over time and interact with each other and he observed uh, a group of galaxies. Uh, these galaxy clusters can range from a few galaxies near each other to uh, nearly 100 galaxies in the general area um, with a common center of mass they share. And um, he observed that uh, these galaxies were moving too fast uh, than, uh, than theoretically they should be. And so there was some type of missing mass. And so he came up with an estimate that the galaxy cluster, I think it was called the Cosima galaxy Cosima, cluster yeah. had 400 times the mass it should have had based off of Newtonian mechanics or Newtonian physics. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was kind of based off of the, the gravitational lensing from the light behind it and just the, the behavior of all the galaxies that were within the Cosima galaxy cluster. Um, but then moving on to the 1950s, um, there's a grad student at Cornell called Vera Rubin um, who actually... Um, there's there's a field of astronomy where you look at the rotational physics of a specific galaxy. So as many of you may know, uh, the Milky Way is a, a spiral galaxy. And so um, with the, the spirals, you're able to take a lot of data. And one of the types of data they take are looking at the, the rotational curves of a galaxy. Um, essentially, how fast um, different points from the center of the galaxy are moving um, in correlation to one another. And so in 1950, when Ruben, or Vera Rubin 
um, was looking at individual rotation curves of galaxies, um, he noticed that far beyond um, the, the matter that we could see, all the stars, um, far beyond the outside of the, the galaxy, um, the, the speed of the galaxy had it slowed down, suggesting there was um, lots and lots of matter that was essentially invisible that was causing um, the outside of the galaxy to rotate very quickly. Yeah. So I think the best analogy for this is not looking at the, the data from Fritz Zwicky, where he looked at galaxy clusters, because it can be a bit confusing look at, looking at the outward and forward velocities of those galaxies. Um, but it's best to think of first the solar system and what Newtonian physics would predict. And so we have the sun at the center of our solar system, the first mm -hmm. planet being Mercury, and we expect Mercury to go quite quickly in orbit around the sun. And then, of course, the further you move out, the slower the planet goes around the sun. So whether you think we have a ninth planet known as Pluto or whether, you know, it's Neptune, that planet is obviously moving slower than Mercury is right next to it. And um, that's, that's just to stay in kind of the circular orbit that it's going right. around. So in order for things to stay going in a circular pattern around the central object or in, in the solar system's case, the sun, they have the further out they are. So the bigger the circle they make, the slower they have to be going. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so when astronomers first looked at galaxies, there was no reason to suspect that would be any different. It should just be a larger version uh, physically of a solar system that we observed before, except it wasn't. And so the best way is, is, is to look at what Vera Rubin saw and look at the simplest way is to look at the, the galaxy rotational curve. So how far out um, are, is, are we moving at this about you know, two thirds of the way out from the center of our Milky Way galaxy uh, versus the stars on the very, very far ends of the Milky Way galaxy. And if we thought of it in terms of the solar system model, we should be moving uh, a little bit faster than the stars on the far out the far reaches of our Milky Way galaxy, except mm -hmm. we're not. And so Vera Rubin in the 1950, as uh, Tom mentioned, looked at distant galaxies and measured the rotational curves. And instead of seeing the velocity drop off as you increase distance from the center of the galaxy, she, she saw that the, the rotational curve, it's called, kind of flattened off. And we call this a flat rotational curve. Right. And so things, the, the velocities did not decrease the further you went out. And the only way to explain this was that there, there seemed to be some unaccounted for mass that was kind of uh, holding those objects on the outside of the galaxy uh, close in at moving at high velocities or higher velocities than expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so at that point, all we know is that we are not, that what we're seeing doesn't match the predictions made by classical, by, by classical mechanics. And right. we're thinking, huh, this is weird there seems, well, to explain this phenomenon, there must be a lot more mass than we can see and account for. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you, uh, so in uh, Princeton physicist, one named Ostreicher and the other one, Jim Peebles in 1973, they ran a simulation of uh, the Milky Way galaxy, our home galaxy uh, on their computers. And they included one simulation without dark matter and one without dark matter. And so without dark matter at the velocities that we observe, at the outside of our own galaxy and other galaxies, all those stars should fly apart without the presence of dark matter. But once you have, you put dark matter in those simulations, you see that that extra mass, even though we can't observe it, and we still to this day don't understand what exactly that mass is or where it comes from, it still kind of gravitationally holds those outer stars at the outside of galaxies to our galaxy so they don't fly out, fly away at those high velocities that we observe them to move in, to be moving. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And Vera, Vera Rubin uh, continued to make progress on rotational curves um, as well as an instrument maker named Kent Ford well into the, the late 1970s. And so even as of 1980, um, there's already a threefold case um, for the presence of this missing mass that we now call dark matter, um, where Franz Zwicky in 1933 noticed um, gravitational lensing um, from a mass 400 times um, greater than he should have seen in that Cosima galaxy cluster, as well as the uh, galaxy rotational curves um, that uh, Vera Rubin had found in 1950 that were then backed up by simulations um, 23 years later in 1973. And I should mention, I'm not sure if Fritz Zwicky uh, used gravitational lensing to first find it. I think it was just the velocities of those galaxies and not lensing. Um, I, I, don't, I, think, I don't think the instrumentation was refined enough to be able to observe those small uh, glitches or the, the small lensing. Also, it's good to also mention that Fritz Wicke was uh, a little bit abnormal, at least in the astronomy community. A lot of people, uh, not only with dark matter, but a lot of people like thought he was a kind of crazy for this idea of dark matter. And it really wasn't, I mean, there's 15 years between when he first proposed it in a paper and when Vera Rubin and other astronomers uh, picked up the idea and actually saw it as being legitimate. So there was a while there where it wasn't really that much of a talk in the astronomy community. Yeah, he, he was known for his rather eccentric and unconventional like, a, approaches and problems. Um, and so another thing is that, well, even though phys physicists and astronomers were observing that there should be more mass, no one exactly knew how to explain what this mass was because we were seeing, well, the solution to fixing what Newton was predicting was to add more mass. But obviously that, there's, that entails two possibilities. Either A, Newton is wrong, and mm -hmm. so then we need to revise the way that we're thinking about gravity at huge, at galactic or larger scales. So that's the first possibility. Or the second possibility is that there exists another kind of matter that doesn't seem to interact with light but that that exerts gravitational force and that interacts gravitationally. And so you have these two possibilities that are kind of, well, they go against one another, that either dark matter is a physical thing, it's a particle, it, you, it's palpable probably in some way, or you have this thing that Newton's laws are wrong, and so it, it, we're not actually looking at missing mass, we're just looking at incorrect mathematical predictions. And nearly, I believe, since the beginning of our search for this quote-unquote missing mass or dark matter, the idea that Newton is wrong has been more or less ruled out. Right. Um, but we'll, we'll cover those approaches. But so essentially for, in, for, for the last, I don't know, since I think the 80s, scientists have been looking for the matter version of dark matter and have been trying to detect the dark matter particle. And there's been lots and lots of and lots of attempts since looking at different versions of the dark matter particle so it could be huge it could be very little it could and it could exist in all sorts of different forms and i mean this it started out i believe in 1987 uh in a mine underground where they were trying to detect dark matter particles and then it and then it's kept coming i mean efforts have be, have kept on going since and we have scientists everywhere now looking for the dark matter particle in, with all kinds of twists and, and variations. Yeah. And also, 
it wasn't always thought that it was a, uh, a particle. And so originally, you know, scientists were still, uh, astronomers were quite uh, archaic in their instrumentation. And it wasn't until the 70s, 80s, and 90s when we started developing other instrumentation that's out in space, mm-hmm. different techniques for observing very faint, uh, non-luminous objects. Uh, so one idea, I think it was in the 70s or 80s, was when we started sending out x-ray observatories out into space, we started looking for hot gas in these distant galaxies, thinking that maybe uh, we know that there should be a lot of hot gas, hot gas in these all galaxies, and perhaps that will account for the missing mass we observe and, account, or, and consider to be dark matter. And it turns out all these galaxies had a tons of hot gas that we didn't know about previously, except that wasn't enough mass to account for uh, the five times the normal baryonic mass. Right. Um, also, when we say baryonic, we're referring to the 5% of the universe that's composed of normal mass, like me, this table I'm sitting at, stuff like that, or the star uh, or planet Earth. And then when we it's say non-baryonic, matter. Yeah, non-baryonic right. is uh, uh, matter that doesn't interact electromagnetically, so it doesn't reflect lights. Um, and it's, that's, that's what we consider to be dark matter. And uh, you said something weird there because you said that our regular matter is only 5%. And we also said before that there's only five times more regular matter. Uh, there's five times more dark matter than there is regular matter. And so uh, right. uh, the astute observer or listener might be wondering how what's happening with the, uh, the rest of the matter. The, other the, rest, 70%. the rest of that mass is what we call dark energy, which is something we'll get into next week. And that's a whole other thing. Um, But at the moment, we're only, for this episode at least, we're only going to look at the 30-some, or yeah, 30-some percent of the mass of the universe, which is one-sixth regular matter, five-sixths dark matter. Mm -hmm. And so we covered the history a little bit, but I think the history would be confusing without us actually talking about the evidence that we have to suggest exactly that to, to, to well to tell us so strongly that dark matter exists and we should be looking for it and it's not just something that we're wasting our time over and so right. as we talked about the first piece of real evidence i think that was that kind of backed up the idea of dark matter was this thing of galaxy rotation curves that we talked about it's this idea that when we look at at the solar system and so sm- relatively small things, uh, Newtonian mechanics. And so gravity, essentially, as we understand it, says that things further out should be going slower than things further in. Mm -hmm. But we didn't see that with the galaxies. And that led to something to, well, to us seeing these flat rotation curves and whereby objects near the center were going at exactly the same speed as objects further out. And so... To, to make that this, these flat rotation curves fit with our understanding of how gravity works, one, one must obviously think there's probably more mass somewhere than we're seeing, for, than we're really seeing. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first piece of evidence that told us there is dark matter out there. The second pretty major piece of evidence that we have for this dark matter is gravitational lens, is the way that objects gravitationally lens. Yeah, and so when we talked about black holes the other week, kind of mentioned the, the fabric of space-time and how it bends and warps if you place an object with high mass. And it's the same thing with large galaxies. And so if we have a galaxy that's, or a, a galaxy cluster 
and now we have to say that it's well it's five there's in that galaxy cluster there should be around five times the mass in dark matter um then then it's a lot of gravity being exerted because it's i don't know if we mentioned this but dark matter uh doesn't interact uh in terms of electromagnetic spectrum so we can't observe it with telescopes it doesn't reflect any light um um, but it does uh, interact gravitationally. And so we can see how it uh, gravitationally influences light, for example. And so when we, uh, you know, when you have something that's very massive, it kind of curves space-time. And so when light from behind it passes around that galaxy, it, it bends around because of how high of mass it is. And then by studying uh, that, how that light curves or how it's, uh, um, what's the term terminology again? Um, it's lensed around that giant galaxy. You can study the distribution of mass within that galaxy. And also you can just study the distribution or what should be the distribution of dark matter within that galaxy or galaxy cluster that lenses the light. And so mm -hmm. to break it down to slightly simpler terms, lensing is when you have a huge object and normally, obviously you wouldn't be able to see what's going on behind the huge object, but the huge object is so big that it bends the space and well, it bends the space time around it. And so it lets us see things that are actually behind it, but that right. appear to be coming. Well, it lets, let, it lets us see objects that are actually behind this huge thing, but by kind of bending the light around it. So the light is not going straight. It's actually bending around these big objects. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so gravitational lensing and uh, obviously, well, gravitational lensing allows us to calculate how much mass there is based on how strong the lensing is. And so when, and so by looking at gravitational lensing, we've also been able to detect that there is really a lot more mass and a lot more lensing than the, than traditional ordinary matter predicts that there should be. Um, and then another line of evidence would be the CMD or CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. And so that was sent or observed. So that's basically the, the light, I think it's 350,000 or so years after the Big Bang. That was when uh, the universe cooled down to a low enough temperature where basically photons could escape. And uh, kind of uh, that's the... Yeah, uh, and ju just to clear that up, um, at very, very, very hot temperatures, um, there's some weird things that go on um, with matter um, where the, the quarks aren't necessarily bound to each other. So essentially what makes up protons and neutrons aren't necessarily stuck together. Um, and there's some weird interactions that happen between the light and the matter, wherein they will collide with each other and create um, products, and those products will collide with each other to create matter and light again. Um, but that's only at hot enough temperatures. And so um, the, the amount of years after the Big Bang uh, that Michael said, what, 325,000, right? Like that. Is what you said, something like that? Um, essentially, the universe cooled down enough where those interactions wouldn't happen anymore and that um, light and photons aren't necessarily um, quantumly bound um, to the matter anymore. So essentially, they're, they're two separate entities instead of colliding with each other to create products and then those products colliding to create um, the matter and light. Yeah, and so when... Uh, scientists with three different satellites, the first one, I think, being WMAP, then COBE or COBE WMAP, and then most recently in 2013, the Planck satellite that studied the CMB, or the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. If you look up a map, if you're on your computer or 
phone listening to this, you can kind of see uh, basically an entire map of the night sky that's either different hues of red or different hues of blue. And those refer to different uh, fluctuations in temperature of the early universe at that point, 350,000 years after the Big Bang. And even though it looks like they're drastically different colors because one's a deep shade of red and one's a bright blue, they're actually very, very, very small fluctuations uh, in temperature in the early universe. And what scientists have recently been able to do, uh, I think it actually won the Nobel or half the Nobel Prize in physics this past year in 2019 is mm -hmm. they uh, the one scientist made well, what's known as a power spectrum of the CMB and he looked at the different area of the different uh, different colors uh, and he said that uh, that uh, angular area on the sky versus the temperature fluctuation he made a map of it or a graph and plotted them on both axes and he got these different bumps uh, that correspond to where uh, the temperature fluctuation is greatest for the given angular size on the map. And he found, or they found that through simulations, once they changed the contents of dark matter in the universe, um, that gives rise to completely different results and what they see in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And so it's very uh, tied to each other in terms of how much dark matter or the, the, the presence of dark matter and what we observe on that power spectrum. So that's another line of evidence. Sorry. And so we have basically these three pretty big pieces of observational evidence that tell us that our current understanding of how the universe works is wrong. We mm -hmm. have galaxy rotation curves that are too flat. And so that's weird. We have gravitational lensing, which is too strong for what, car what our current mass accounts for. So that's weird. And then thirdly, we have the cosmic microwave background, which behaves in such a way that tells us there probably was actually some other thing. And so like that dark matter. And so that's weird too. So these three pretty large pieces of evidence that tell us our observational evidence is wrong. Uh, oh, sorry. Our, our current understanding how the universe works is wrong. Sorry. Not the mm -hmm. observational evidence is not wrong. Um, and so as, as we talked about before there, that gives you kind of two main options, either, our understanding of gravi gravity is wrong. And so we're not actually seeing missing mass anywhere. It's just that we're incorrectly predicting that there should be more mass. So that's the first, first option. The second option obviously is that there is actually something out there that's physical, it's real, it's palpable, and it interacts gravitationally. And so, and that is dark matter, except that this dark matter is a kind of matter that we have yet to, to interact with or we've yet to meet it and mm -hmm. it doesn't interact with light so we can't see it and it's just hiding out there and so there's um so yeah those are kind of the two main directions that we can be looking at when we're actually trying to think about what dark matter actually could be and so i so first of all i think we should go into what dark matter actually well what the physical the physical yeah what the option. what the theoretical particles particles are. yeah what what yeah. these particles are so as i mentioned before that like not only is there the idea of the particle but there's also the idea that it could just be a very faint uh baryonic matter or matter that's doesn't isn't um, explained by something that's dark and elusive and doesn't mm -hmm. reflect light and so i mentioned before the idea of the hot gas that the the astronomers observed that they 
found that it doesn't account for all of the missing mass in the universe. And another idea that came forward was something known as a macho, I believe it's pronounced, which is stands for a massive compact halo object. And so that could be a bunch of you know, black holes or small black holes that aren't the, not super massive black holes at the center of galaxies that I could count for that missing mass or a bunch of uh, um, uh, low temperature or not low temperature, but very uh, faint dust in the, in the universe. Right. Um, and also a lot of planets, unobserved planets in the universe. And right. like together, scientists believe that could account for the missing mass. But most mm -hmm. uh, re recently, they've kind of thrown away that idea of it, of it being uh, composed of all these. Uh, very, yeah, they, they've transitioned from very big invisible objects to very small weakly interacting objects. Yeah. And I mean, to, to give credit to the macho uh, hypothesis, that is the one that intuitively makes the most sense. It, because mm -hmm. if someone showed me a picture of a galaxy and said, hey, how much does this thing weigh? I, had, I would have no idea. You know, I, I, you can't just right. stick a weighing scale under it. And it's really hard to try to count every single thing in that picture. And especially it's really, really dark. Especially that if it's really dark. And so naturally, one might think we're probably just not seeing it, but it's just regular matter that exists and it's out there. However, increasingly, we're confident that we can calculate the mass of these things. And we're confident that we're accounting for everything that's tangible and everything mm -hmm. made of baryonic matter. And we still are, are falling way short of the mass that we should be getting. And right. so this is really pointing towards the idea that there is probably a physical particle or the, there's physical matter out there that we can't see because it's trying not to be seen. It's not just that it's, it's mini stuff that we're not seeing. It's, it's matter that's actively kind of disguising itself. And right. so there's, um, there's a couple, oh, there's, and so as we talked about, there's this idea of, of the wimp, the massively, uh, the, the weak interacting mass, weakly interacting right. massive particle, which right. is just a huge particle that weighs a lot more than the particles that we, that we would consider matter, like the chair, the chair I'm sitting on and things like that, mm -hmm. but it doesn't interact with light. And so that's why we're not seeing it. So, and so that's the WIMP option. There's also this other idea of the axion, which is a very, very small particle, I believe, that's kind of, it's very dilute. It exists everywhere within our current matter. And it's right. so small that we can't detect that we don't, it, it has no impact on the way that our baryonic matter works. However, mm -hmm. given that, given how much there is, it could, that could be one of the options for um, that could be one of the options for what dark matter is. And many, many people are looking for the axion dark matter particle mm -hmm. candidate. And for that, I believe that we're essentially, we're building very, very, well, there, I think there's many ways of trying right. to detect the axion. A way, which um, I've heard about is building very, very sensitive radio, uh, just radios, exactly like the kind that we use to listen to music in our cars. Um, and we could detect some of the signals of the, the axion interacting with, uh, with our, our matter, I believe. Right. And specifically for radios, um, uh, as electromagnetism happens to work, radio waves have um, the least amount of energy um, compared to gamma rays. And so um, an axion or uh, a wimp, something that's weakly interacting with the electromagnetic spectrum and light would, if at all, if they, if they 
um, interact with the the spectrum, it would have to be um, radio waves in a, a very, very, very small amount. And so that's why um, we specifically look at radio waves and not something um, like the the X-ray satellites that we sent up um, previously. Yeah. And I mean, there's lots of, I mean, there's loads, there's very, a lot of p potential candidates for dark matter. And right. I don't think, and I mean, some of them, the major ones, such as, um, as, ax, uh, as WIMPs and axions are kind of the, I think the biggest ones, but there's really very little evidence so far that these are actually mm -hmm. the answer. And there's loads of, of other candidate particles that really could turn out to be responsible for dark matter. And the one issue nowadays is uh, scientists are realizing that they've been spending the past 30 years looking for a particle, whether it be a WIMP, uh, an axion or something else. Uh, that we're not sure and so the, the question now becomes is it worth continuing the hunt for dark matter with a particle approach or could it be something else right. think interesting. and so these these uh, i don't know if you call them astronomers or particle physicists uh they they often do as i kind of mentioned in the beginning in the news bit when i talked about the mountain underneath or the the, the, the mine underneath the mountain in italy where they have these dark matter detectors is they go to very very quiet places so the quietest place you can find is likely a few thousand feet underneath a very tall mountain in Italy or an old mine shafts uh, out west in the continental US. Mm -hmm. And they have these giants, uh, usually they use xenon and uh, other noble gases and these giant vats that are a few tons to up to 10 tons. And uh, they, they look for uh, little blips in their detectors um, as little counts as particles passing through. And so that's that's like the, the nowadays, that's the approach they take uh, in terms of experimental dark matter looking mm -hmm. for a particle. And also, uh, Tom may know more about this, but I know when they started uh, CERN, or the Large Hadron Collider, right. uh, that was one uh, possibility, is the idea that they could detect the dark matter particle through that in the first few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with, um, well, just to, just to wrap up the, the Xenon experiments, uh, as why they use big vats, um, there's predictions that the, uh, the amount of axions traveling um, through your body at any given moment is in the millions of trillions of particles. Yeah. So some insane number. And so, but it's um, so that, small that over a lifetime, only one right. milligram of dark matter would have passed through you. Right. Yeah. Um, that there, there's just so many of these particles that are passing through. You figure uh, you would detect at least one um, within 30 years, just because of the, the sheer amount that are passing through, but they're um, so small and, so weakly interacting that it is becoming difficult. And so that's why um, at CERN, um, they thought they would be able to um, discover um, some kind of dark matter. I think specifically at CERN, um, they thought of the idea to use, um, so as you may know, normal matter has a counterpart called antimatter. And so they, they, at CERN, they are very easily able to create um, antiparticles. Um, through their collisions in the, the Large Hadron Collider. And so um, one theory was that if dark matter is a real particle, then theoretically there should be an anti-dark matter um, that could be more easily observed than um, actual dark matter. And so with these um, high-speed collisions between um, different particles and the particles that make up um, atoms and the, the particles that make up the particles that make up atoms, that they'd be able to um, detect these very, very, very small and weakly interacting 
um, particles when they, they smash together two objects. But they didn't. And then also, yeah, uh, this was a hypothesis uh, in terms of particle dark matter a while ago, but it's kind of been ruled out, and that's the idea of neutrino. Mm -hmm. So neutrino was often associated with something called hot dark matter. Um, and since then, uh, once or over the years, once we've been able to uh, learn more about what neutrino is and how much uh, there is in the universe, uh, we've kind of ruled that out in terms of accounting for all the dark right. matter. Well, that's, that's what dark matter is good for, because we, we predicted that a neutrino um, is dark matter, um, which was obviously wrong, but we were actually able to discover what a neutrino actually is, and that it's a, it's a real particle, and that happens um, in radioactive decay. And so the, the particle physics in dark matter may not necessarily be um, life-changing towards the discovery of exactly what dark matter is, but it, it gives us a lot of insight into um, particle physics that we may not necessarily have been looking at in the first place. And um, I mean, I, I even though it appears that the scientific consensus is that um, dark matter is in the matter is in the the matter form i i i have to say i quite like the idea that um that our understanding of gravity is wrong and it's not actually um and that i i mean i i find it i i would find that quite cool if dark matter could actually be explained fully by a modification to our understanding of gravity. And there have been many of these uh, different theoretical models proposed over the years. Uh, some insanely, most of them are insanely complicated because they bring together so many different areas. I mean, not that, because they bring together all of these areas of physics um, and try to explain kind of how the universe works through through all of these, yeah, through all of these different separate areas of physics and try to wrap it all together into one coherent package that would somehow explain not only how the universe works at the very, very small level, but how it works at the huge level and how gravity works and all of this. And so the, yeah, go, go for it. I was gonna say the leading candidate for modified gravity is known as MOD or modified Newtonian dynamics. Yep. And so essentially what, what Mond is, is it's a, it's a model that says that gravity as we understand it works the way that we understand it on the smaller scales, but at the really, really, really big scales, gravity doesn't exactly behave in the same way. And this was proposed as early as the 1970s, except that Mond couldn't, Mond never successfully explained all of the, uh, all of the different observational Thing, pieces that we have. So for example, Mond failed at explaining how the dark matter accounts for the, uh, the way that the cosmic microwave background is. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, Mond has been dropped. But many, oh, well, Mond was kind of ruled out initially. But since then, many, many, many mm, scientists have kind of rekindled the idea of Mond. The main challenge um, with throwing out the idea of dark matter being a particle and instead having it be um, a fundamental misunderstanding of gravity is that you would have to test, and this is what happens in all modern physics and astronomy, you would have to test your hypothesis at every single extreme possible because we, we very like quickly understand 
you know, what's happening on a skill. If I were to throw my computer against the wall, it's going to hit the wall and fall down. Right. But you know, if, if it was billions and billions of degrees hot, how would that work? Or if it's on a very tiny scale, um, particle physics are on a very, very big scale looking at gravity and galaxies, or if it's extremely cold, um, like the cosmic microwave background is how would that behave? And so, um, testing these theories at the, the very extremes of, what the universe is capable of um, is where we need to be able to have these predictions be right. Yeah. And I think both ideas, whether it be modified gravity or a dark matter particle candidate, I think both have very big implications and they both involve a lot of uh, not necessarily new physics, but a lot of like new understanding of how the universe works, mm -hmm. which obviously comes along with understanding what something known as dark matter is. Um, right. I, I know uh, previously from astronomy classes I've taken at university, most professors kind of briefly brush aside the idea of mo modified Newtonian dynamics or MOND, just mm -hmm. because I think in the astronomy community and perhaps in the physics community, it's uh, kind of been that outlier where not many people, not as many people are working on it. So it's uh, kind of ignored. It doesn't pass all the tests as Joe explained. And they kind of look at it in terms of either being explained by some particle that a detector like a liquid xenon vet has yet to detect just because they're not refined enough and we just have to wait a decade or two until they're sensitive enough to detect the particle or perhaps we need perhaps there's um you know in the next decade or so we'll come across some other novel idea as to what it could be right and it's, it's also led to theories that expand outside of our own universe um because it, it could very well be a mixture between um particles and a misunderstanding of physics but it could also be you know i i, I think michael knows more about this but that yeah, there the, are parallel universes um that are you know essentially stacked on top of each other and that the gravity from um one universe is able to seep through and affect our universe yeah and so when we think of the universe obviously it's uni so being one verse that's us, but perhaps uh, as some has become quite popular in the past decade or two, the idea of the multiverse, where we're kind of surrounded by a bunch of other universes or universi, uh, and there's a membrane so separating these different universes, mm -hmm. and and gravity is some force that can kind of, I mean, this is quite science fictiony, I believe, uh, and perhaps something we'll never be able to know because you know you can't really test something that's not in your own laboratory or in your in your own universe, right. but perhaps gravity is some force that seeps. Uh, is able to seep through uh, the membrane separating the different universes. And so we're, when we see dark matter in our galaxy, perhaps we're seeing uh, it just seep through from a galaxy in the nearby universe. I mean, that's obviously far out there and more of like a thought experiment, I'd say. Uh, but yes. Right. And, you know, that's, that's something that we'll never be able to um, prove or understand, but... It, you know, it's it's still a possibility if we never actually end up finding anything. That's true. And also, um, as we mentioned before, we see the dark matter now, and because uh, we talked about the three lines of evidence for dark matter uh, mm -hmm. being the rotational curves, gravitational lensing, and the CMB, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation. Right. But one thing we also didn't mention is that dark matter has a lot of implications when. Uh, we're studying the evolution of the universe. And so dark right. matter, it turns out, we think it's very clumpy, uh, meaning that it, it, it's very attractive to itself. And so with a universe without dark matter, we don't see the large scale structure, or 
when we run simulations without dark matter, we don't see the large scale structure in the universe as we see today. And so uh, a common way to describe it is the cosmic web or these filaments of dark matter that run to and fro in every which direction. And along these, uh, these galaxies kind of gravitate towards and kind of stream through like a highway where you have one right. lane going one way and then so another lane going the other way. Right. And without the exact percentage of dark matter as a ratio to the normal amount of matter and dark energy, we don't see in the simulations the structure we observe today. And so it's very something, something very fundamental, um, whether it be modified Newtonian dynamics or whether it be a particle, uh, we know, as we've mentioned, that it's there and that it's necessary to explain what we observe today. Right, and we'll, we'll cover more of the evolution of the universe um, in part two in next week's episode when we talk about um, dark energy, mm -hmm. but the, the evolution is very interesting um, when you think about it, especially with that, that matter web that you're talking about. It draws a lot of parallels to um, like a circulatory system where you know the, the main sources of everything um, run in or along all the veins and arteries that go in your body. Like the neurons um, of a brain. Exactly, yeah. And so um, having those connections could, um, we can show, you know, a picture of the cosmic microwave background. If you happen to look it up, um, all the different fluctuations could be caused because of that, that dark matter web that everything happened to clump around. Because, you know, if dark matter has spread across the universe, then regular matter is going to be gravitationally bound. And, you know, that's how, you know, galaxies were first created and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's dark matter in general is just a very interesting subject because I don't know, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't know if there's been um, an unknown in the, in the realm of astronomy and physics for this long. Right. Yeah. Of course, like there have been things we haven't known, but we just didn't realize we didn't know them. But in terms of trying to observe something and try to explain the fundamentals of what something is, it's been quite a while. Uh, being now 2020 and this being first introduced in 1933 by Fritz Wittgenstein. And mm -hmm. the, the funny thing is that it seems to be, it seems to be a subject that we can just sidestep. It's, it seems right. not to, we in, in the pursuit of our understanding of everyday and of regular physics, it seems to be completely unimportant that we're not understanding what 95% of the universe is exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's very bizarre to think that, we can just keep going and try and keep understanding things better and better without actually kind of addressing the elephant in the room. Uh, right. And but, so it's interesting you say that, Joe, just because my research professor who studies galaxies, one interesting thing is dark matter is very, very important to how he understands the, the, how galaxies interact with each other in the evolution. And there's something called the dark matter halo that extends very, very far out beyond what we observe uh, uh, of the stars in a galaxy. Um, and he's told me multiple times he doesn't care at all what dark matter is, whether it's a modification of gravity or whether it's a particle or something we have never even thought of. Like all that matters is that he can somehow in a simulation or in his observations account for that five times the, right. the, the, the normal matter or approximately. Mm -hmm. um, um, like, and that, that'll give you the correct models. Like yeah, you, don't, you don't need to understand what it is. You don't have to understand what it is, which I think is really, really wacky. Right. Yeah. Well, I also think the most challenging part is it's like Joe mentioned. It, even though dark matter is five times normal matter, you know, at about twenty-five ish percent of the entire universe, 
it's so entangled with all the other unknowns that we don't know about the universe. Like dark matter and dark energy, I guarantee are hand in hand with one another. And without understanding one, you can't understand the other. And so we're, we're at a big barricade of, um, you know, understanding the universe. But also I think a common misconception is people kind of confuse that confuse dark matter with dark energy just because they both start with the same word dark right i mean and, they're and separate I, they're just so entangled with one another well we don't even know you know exactly what they are right. i don't know if they're entangled with each other other than like they're the leading unknowns in the scientific community and yeah. discovering them would be i mean i don't even know what they right are. yeah but like paradigm shift yeah. yeah it's like one one affects the other and you can't fully understand one without the other yeah, and, you know. and also a side note is uh, something we didn't bring up, but dark matter isn't distributed evenly. I mentioned the cosmic web, so it falls along mm-hmm. these filaments. But in, I believe in some galaxies there have been there has been very, very, very little amounts of dark matter observed, and so that's and right. another. It's missing. Yeah. That's another yeah. question that's come up in the past decade is not only do we understand that there is just dark matter in the universe, but why does it show up in some galaxies more than it does in others? But yeah, very, we. We know there's missing matter, but in some places there's missing missing matter. Mm-hmm. Yes, so and, it complicates things. Right, <laughs> it, and I know that some new theories are coming out where you know dark matter. Uh, it's like I mentioned the the other week in a previous episode of Not So Serious how scientists have confirmed that there's a, a fourth spatial dimension, and so maybe dark matter is uh, purely a four D particle similarly to how the, the anion that we mentioned today is a 2d particle and that's why um, we can't fully understand it yeah but suffice to say it's going to be very interesting to find out uh what the explanation is for dark matter if we ever find one there might we might never right hey everyone thank you for listening to this podcast episode this is michael this is sam This is Tommy. And this is Joe. If you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure to leave a review. All of the show notes can be found either in the description below or on our website. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week with more Everything Astronomy.